Welcome to episode 26 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey and I'm none other than the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf and I'm the associate editor at Country and Townhouse. Now we have three guests today, including Hugh Bonneville, so we've got lots of excitement ahead. And we're going to start straight away by talking about the tango. Now, Asta Piazzolla is one of Argentina's most famous composers and he's known for revolutionising the tango by fusing it with classical and jazz. He'd would have been turning 100 years old on the 11th of March this year. And to honour his memory, the Piazzolla Music Competition has been created. And one of the people behind the competition is Bob Lord, who is in fact the CEO of Palmer Recording. Bob's here to tell us more about Asta Piazzolla and why it's so important to honour him. Bob. Thank you so much for having me. I greatly appreciate it. Um, pleased to be here and to talk about this wonderful composer and I think his really important and incredible work. A centenary is a, a big anniversary for any artist. And Piazzolla's music is fascinating because it continues to grow and evolve past his life. Well, thank you for joining us all the way from Northampton in the States. And I think many of our UK listeners might feel exactly like me. We sort of know we love the tango as it instantly transports us somewhere exotic and fabulous. But we actually know very little about it. So can you start by telling us a bit more about Asta Piazzolla and and why it's so important that we don't forget him? Well, Piazzolla is such an interesting figure in the history of music and especially in these last hundred years. And I'm always attracted to people who are seeking and searching and trying to find something new and discovering themselves through art and discovering art through themselves. Piazzolla is clearly one of these guys. He, as you said, he fused different types of music together. So he came from a, a more traditional background in Argentina in a more traditional form, in, in tango as it was. But that wasn't what he was all about. That wasn't where he was going. And his career and his life, I think, was a constant struggle between his desire to communicate, connect with audiences, to honor his heritage, but also to expand his craft. This is a guy who studied classical music with Nadia Boulanger, who was the teacher of Aaron Copland, for example, and studied with Alberto Ginastera, uh, one of the preeminent Latin American composers. And he was, I believe, stuck between thinking about trying to sound and emulate, you know, sound like and emulate Stravinsky and, and Bela Bartok, but also having his own voice. And, and you can hear this vacillation in his music, and it begins to really unify at a certain point in his career. And I believe what kind of came out of that was was wonderful and unconventional and unusual and just simply groundbreaking. So I went to Buenos Aires about 20 years ago and it's kind of, it's a bit of a cliche, but there are people doing the tango on the street. Is Piazzolla venerated in Argentina? He certainly is, but I think uh, Piazzolla, to paraphrase him, he said that tango is music for the, the ear and not for the feet. So his idea was was transformational, it was to, to change this and bring it someplace different and to kind of give a different layer and, and um, element of dimension to this music. And I think he succeeded in that. So tell us about the competition. It's open to anyone. And the spirit of it is music without borders. So tell us who's behind it, how it works. Obviously, all our listeners are composers. What kind of music will they be submitting? Well, it's really interesting. It's interesting to me, and I hope it's interesting to your, to your listeners. But to celebrate this wonderful composer's music, we decided to create this competition uh, in partnership with his family. And the goal is to, in part, raise awareness about Astor's music, to continue to celebrate it in public. But I think also to unearth new talent and new, fresh voices uh, in soloists and performers 
who have something different to say. And I think all the judges who are involved, and, and many of them collaborated with Esther personally, they all want to see someone carry something further here. And I think that's what we're looking for as far as the, the, um, the submissions go. I think we're also trying to do a, a good thing. And there's a lot of people in the world right now who are having difficulty. And our goal is to help uh, musical education, to contribute to charity, and to really bring music to underprivileged youth. So uh, the proceeds from application fees uh, do go to charity, musical education charity. And for us, we think it's really important to give something back and to help elevate some talent. Now, Bob, you're a musician to your fingertips, and you've worked with some great musicians, including Pete Townsend from The Who, and I bring him up. Because <laughs> he used to be my constituent. Not that I ever met him. Tell us about working with Pete Townsend and all the other great musicians you've worked with. Uh, well, just to be honest about it, I'm a recovering bass player. So, <laughs> you know, it's a, <laughs> and a recovering English major, actually. Um, no, but but you look, as a musician, I've had a career where I've been able to tour across the U.S. I've been able to record with artists like the London Symphony Orchestra, like Dan Brown, the author of The Da Vinci Code. Um, and I've really had a really fascinating and interesting and multifarious career. But the reason why I started on this path in the first place was because I heard the who. But to work with Pete, you know, it was a very interesting experience because I said earlier about Aster that for me, I'm always interested in artists who are still searching. And it is so clear from working with Pete and getting to know him a little bit that he is still as dissatisfied as he was uh, when he was young. He is still as searching and seeking um, expression and, and music and the ideal. And as a fan and as a, a co-producer of a project with him, I can say it really warms my heart, um, the, the both sides of my heart, the, the kid who, who fell in love with that music and, and the guy who, uh, who worked with them. But you must have been speechless when you met him. Uh, well, <laughs> he, he opened up the door and he said, who are you? And I don't, I don't think of Dan Brown as a musician. How come you work with him? Well, not a lot of people do. And, um, and the fact of the matter is Dan was a musician before he was a writer in, no in many way. ways. Before, now that yeah. I did not know. This is good. It's a, it's a really interesting little thing. So Dan actually, uh, he was living out in LA and he put out a couple albums, one of which was produced, uh, in, I believe a development deal by a label, another one that he self-produced. Songwriter, uh, piano player, and it was really his, his first passion. So it didn't quite work out. I mean, there's a lot of us who, <laughs> who go into it trying to, make a, trying to make a living and it doesn't work. And so he came back to New England and decided to turn his hand to writing, and it worked out pretty well. What sort of music was it? Uh, I would call it like singer-songwriter um, in terms of uh, vocals, lyrics, uh, piano music. So about 15 years ago, I actually had a chance to appear with Dan at a concert. So in doing my homework for the gig, which was my job, is, is to basically you know put together music that goes with the theme of the, uh, of the author who's appearing. We've been doing this for 15, 16 years now. I did some research, and I found out what I just told you. And I found one of his tracks, and I decided to arrange it for the band to play for him when he walked out on stage. So we did it. And uh, I wish I could have taken a photo of the look on his face. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was extraordinary. And so from that point on, we got to become friends. About five years ago, he said, hey, listen, I want to get back into producing music. Are you interested in helping? I said, you bet. And uh, a couple years ago, we developed this great project called Wild Symphony, which is a children's illustrated book uh, of poems with musical accompaniment by symphony orchestra. So it's like 21 animal portraits that Dan composed, we recorded, and we released in the fall along with his new book. That's amazing. It's with the Zagreb Festival Orchestra. That's correct. Yeah, in Croatia. Great group. Which is now playing on my iPhone. I can't stop it. <laughs> That's what that noise is. I but that sounds amazing. Brown and I, uh, I can't stop it. But, um, <laughs> I'll tell you. That's amazing. That's amazing. So yeah, nobody, it's... nobody knows this. 
No, nobody <laughs> well, knows. I hope they do now. <laughs> it's available everywhere, Spotify, uh, Apple Music, uh, streaming and download only. It's called Wild Symphony, and you can go to wildsymphony.com uh, to check out the book and the music. It's published in the UK by uh, Penguin Random House. This is amazing. Well, I wonder what we're going to find out that Lee Child does in his spare time. Um, <laughs> I, actually, I actually played with Lee Child uh, oh a couple of years back. Yeah, because you know, because because you know, Lee, he did a he did an album. He did an album actually. No, no. yeah. <laughs> yeah, he did. So, so we, we we did one of his tunes, and again, I didn't tell him. And he's on the side of the stage, just like, "What are you doing?" It was great. It was really cool. Wait, yeah. hold on. So, what, what, why are you on stage with Lee Child anyway? So uh, this this gig that I told you about that I've been doing for 15, 16 years with my trio, um, it's at this venue in in Portsmouth called the Music Hall. Uh, I'm on the the board of directors there. Portsmouth, and it's, UK. Uh, no, uh, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, uh, north of Boston. But yeah, so it's a wonderful venue. We've been doing these gigs for many, many years, and I've had the chance to, uh, you know, play with guys like, or, you know, appear with Stephen King, Salman Rushdie, Madeline Albright. Uh, oh my it's God. been John Updike. John Updike actually said that my band sounded like uh, he said it's the quote unquote sound of terror, which is still a pull quote that I use. You know, <laughs> why are all these people schlepping out to Portsmouth to hear you play? Well, it's a really fun gig because not a lot of places have events. Well, first of all, it's a beautiful venue, but not a lot of places have events where you're combining music, a public radio broadcast, a live event, an interview. Lee Child gets invited for an interview and he walks out and you start playing his music. That's correct. And he thinks this is crazy. This is crazy. <laughs> and where did you and find it's, Lee it's Child's fun. music? You know, it's uh, it's it's out there. It's it's out there in the ether. You can find it. Um, but uh, a lot of a lot of guys who have success in one area, they often have, you know, dreams and aspirations in, in talent in other areas. Uh, Madeline Albright, when she came to, to perform with us, she gave her speech and she was delightful. At the end of the night, when the curtain went back down, she saw the drum kit, she walked to the side of the stage, she picked up the drum kit, uh, the, the, the drumsticks with a jazz grip and started to play. The no whole, way. <laughs> oh yeah, and, and everybody was sitting there like, wait, what? Madeline Albright, the Secretary of State, right? So it was really cool. I love it. I met Madeline Albright as well. If only I'd known that she was a jazz drummer, I would have surprised her. <laughs> All right, Ed, I, I need to know. I need to know something from you. I, I need to know. Do you have the hero story? Did you ever meet the guy or, or, or the woman or the person or the team or whatever that you had always dreamed of? And what was it like? I imagine you must have. God, no, I'm not sure I have really. Really? I'm not sure I have because most of my well, I'd love to have met Barack Obama. I haven't met him. I'd love to have met Nelson Mandela. Obviously, I'm never going to meet him. Uh, I met Paul McCartney. He was wonderful. Bob, you must have met Paul McCartney. You know, I, I haven't. Although, again, there's one of those bass players that when I was a kid, I just listened to that sound. I'm like, oh, my God, what a sound. And uh, couldn't get away from it. But but it's it's interesting just being a musician and, you know, understanding in my own life, but also through being a producer with so many musicians and artists like there's that element of experimentation that you hope never goes away and you try and keep it inside you constantly. You try and access it. And I think, you know, to go back to the Piazzolla thing, I think that's one of the reasons why I love his music so much and why I think it's been so fruitful for so many interpreters. And I think it's such a wonderful thing for listeners is that although there's elements of it that you obviously recognize that make you want to move, there's all these undercurrents in, in filigree and detail of these other types of music, jazz, classical, all these things that um, you can feel them. And, and that to me is the fun part of discovering music and getting deep into it. So that's, that's my passion, my love. Yeah. You've been brilliant, Bob. And thank you so much for telling us all about the Piazzolla music competition and also about Dan Brown and Lee Child's hidden talents, which we weren't expecting. 
No. <laughs> well, thank you. I really appreciate the time. And uh, thanks again. We want to talk now about buying books. We're always telling you about great books on this podcast. And many of us are tempted to take the quick and easy route and go straight to that company that shall not be named. <laughs> to buy them. We're not going to give them any publicity on this podcast. But what about if you would buy a book online with all the same speed and convenience, but know that when you were doing it, you were actually supporting a local independent bookshop? Well, now you can, thanks to a brilliant innovation, bookshop.org. Let me repeat that so you can get a pen out. Bookshop.org. Very easy to remember. It's a new initiative for the socially conscious shopper. It was founded by Andy Hunter in the United States last year, last January, and it's already raised a life-saving $10 million for independent bookstores stateside. Good news is, it's coming to the UK. Well, yes, it's actually hit the UK. The site went up in November and it already has 400 independent bookshops signed up. You can see very clearly on the site that it's now raised well over £900,000 for them. So it's very cheering for people like me who love independent bookshops and who feel guilty every time we click on that shall not be named by now button. Bookshop.org is wonderfully easy to use. It's a very clearly laid out site with lots of themed sections and it's a real joy to browse, just like a real bookshop. There's advice on what to read, recommendations from well-known authors and books to watch, which is all part of the plan as bookshop.org's stated aim is actively to support literary culture, which, of course, we love. Now, Nicole Vanderbilt is the UK Managing Director and she's here to tell us how it all works and why you should switch to it immediately. Hello, Nicole. Hi there. Thanks for having me. So it's a great initiative. And of course, we hugely applaud anyone who's helping out our wonderful bookshops at such a difficult time. So tell us how it actively works, because no one expects you to be able to deliver necessarily the same super cheap service as other gargantuan global websites. But give us an idea of costs and delivery times, and also what uh, independent booksellers get out of it. Yeah. So the way that it works is an independent bookshop can come set up an account and profile page on bookshop.org. And it takes about the same amount of time and skill as it takes to set up a Twitter or Instagram profile. And then from then on out, if they sell a book through our website, they get a 30% commission. That's 30% of the cover price goes to them as a commission. When a buyer places an order, we actually take that order and pass it to a wholesaler, uh, Gardeners in this case. And then gardeners will take that book from their warehouse and dispatch it directly to the consumer. So if as an independent bookshop, you get the 30% commission and you don't have to, uh, a lot of the hassle. You don't have to touch the book. You don't have to stand in line at the post office. You don't have to unpack it or repack it. None of that. That's brilliant. So I can basically nominate my favorite local bookshop and start um, supporting them. That's right. You can no nominate them by going to the map in the upper right hand side of our website or the bookshops themselves on Twitter or on their websites or on um, in email newsletters can provide links that will designate you as their customers as well. Now, I read that you had 6,000 affiliates aside from independent bookshops. Who are they? What, what does that mean? Yeah, that's a great question. So part of what we wanted to do was support uh, anybody who's generating an interest in books online. And this is a program that <laughs> the website that shall not be named has had in place for a long time too, called an affiliate program. And what that means is that anytime on our site, whether you're a book blogger or a media company or an individual, anytime you generate a sale on our website, you will get 10% commission. 
and a further 10% will go into a shared profit pool for the independent bookshops on our site. So if you're like a sort of cult figure in the world of literary recommendations, let's pick a name out of the air like Mariella Frostrup, for example, and people kind of uh, look to you for book recommendations, uh, you could generate a nice little additional income as well as helping authors and bookshops. That's right. Yes, it, it supports anybody who wants to generate an interest in a book and has the possibility to sell it. I don't want to put a downer on this discussion, but just uh, to be clear, the books will probably cost a little bit more than they might from the website that shall not be named and may take a little longer to deliver. What we do do is we offer on average a 7% discount off the cover price. And we do this because we think consumers expect a bit of a discount online. They've been conditioned to do to expect that and to offset a bit the cost of shipping because we do charge for shipping. Um, but so far, we have not found that either the price of the book or the charging for shipping has been a um, impediment to people buying. It's a very early days in the UK. Are you able to share any numbers either in terms of how many people use the site in the US or are using it in the UK? In the US in 2020, the website did about $55 million in book sales over the course of the year, um, having started in January last year. So that's roughly 2 million books, I would say, I guess. Uh, that's quicker math than maybe I can do, but yeah. Ed, sure. I'm impressed. Well, your, your average hardback, your average hardback in the US costs about thirty dollars. I seem to remember from my occasional trips to the yeah, US. Yeah, fair, Didn't fair, it? yeah. And in the UK, we started, um, as you guys mentioned earlier, at the beginning of November. We really rushed to launch to try to help the indies as much as possible in the run up to Christmas. I'm slightly mad to uh, start a new business then, but we did. And uh, we've crossed a, over five million pounds in book sales here. Oh, brilliant! Five million pounds in just two months—that's amazing. Nicole, these are the uh, series of unfair questions are coming your way because we haven't prepped you for this podcast. But I obviously two thoughts occur to me. One is: Are you able to share who's popular apart from Richard Osman? Obviously, in terms of what books are being bought, is there any insight into what U.S. buyers buy and British buyers buy? Yeah, it's a good question. So I would say in both cases, our top 10 in any given week, you know, about half the titles are what you'd expect. You know, you'd see, you'd see them um, on the best-selling lists. And the other half are really driven by sort of surprising, smaller titles, often dri driven either by the author themselves or other interests via lists or other affiliates that come out. Um, so yeah, I mean, we've had, um, we've sold a fair amount of Richard Osman, make no mistake, but we've also had quite a few smaller titles do uh, quite well, both in the US and in the UK. Brilliant. Well, I'm going to bookmark bookshop.org. And obviously, all, all the books I get now because I'm a, a leading cultural figure. <laughs> <laughs> you could go on it, Ed. You could set up shop on it. Publishers. Oh, well, well, thank you. My next book is coming from bookshop.org. I can tell you that for free. Well, thank you very much for coming and telling us about it, Nicole. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful initiative. And like Ed, I will be following him onto your site. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much. We're very excited because we have a national treasure on the podcast today. All our listeners will know him as the Earl of Grantham in Downton Abbey and many as Mr. Brown in Paddington. But Hugh Bonneville has a fine and varied career as a stage and screen actor, and he's here to tell us about his new film, To Olivia. 
Two Olivier tells the story of the children's author Roald Dahl and his American movie star wife Patricia Neal, who is played by the brilliant Keely Hawes. Uh, they tragically lo- lose their daughter Olivia, aged just seven, to measles encephalitis. So I'm sure most of you are really keen to hear from Hugh himself. So without further ado, good morning, Hugh. Good morning, Ed. What a lovely introduction. <laughs> How beautiful of you. Thank you. I, yes. <laughs> the least I could do, frankly. <laughs> Good morning, Hugh. And Good huge morning, congratulations because I watched the film last night and it's extraordinarily moving, sometimes almost unbearable. Now, for you, this is a real departure because there are moments when Roald Dahl's pretty monstrous as he flounders in his grief. Um, you play him brilliantly, but I'm wondering what drew you to playing such a dark character? Well, I think what what first struck me was a, a horribly universal or potentially universal story that every parent's worst nightmare, that of losing a child, which which no parent ever wants to go through. This story charts the, uh, the effect that that has on a marriage and, in fact, on a marriage that already has a fissure running through it. And then an extra layer, if you like, was the fact that it's Roald Dahl and, and Patricia Neal, um, who, who at the time, in the 19, early 1960s, Patricia was a, a, a very well-established Broadway and Hollywood star uh, and Roald really wasn't that well known as a writer, certainly not of the children's fiction that made him a house, the household name he is today. Our story happens around the time that uh, he was starting to, well, he was working on Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, um, the rest is history, and that she eventually um, uh, won an Oscar for a film called HUD that she did with Paul Newman, played by Sam Hewen in the film. So it's a story that has obviously a, a completely you know human layer to it a tragic chart of trajectory of grief but it actually you know against the backdrop of this uh, couple who we now know as a, as a celebrated uh, pair so our listeners know that Keely Hawes is a huge fan of mine. Um, she never stopped talking about you, Ed, on set. It was all I could do to shut her up. It is, it is, it is embarrassing. Every, every, every time I see her, she tells me how good I am on something called The Right Stuff, which has since been cancelled, I think. Um, anyway, I am actually a massive Keely Hawes fan, partly because I can't turn on the television without seeing something with Keely Hawes in it. She's everywhere. Oh, she's unbelievable. She is, she is, she's everywhere. Lockdown? Hello. I've called her COVID now. <laughs> have you worked with her before? Do you know, and she won't thank me for saying this, but I'll say it anyway. I worked with her when she was a child actor. Um, oh, one my, of my God. Yeah, one of my early jobs was at the National Theatre uh, in a play called Entertaining Strangers, and, and uh, there was a rotation of children in the play, and uh, one of them was called Ms. Keeley Hawes. Um, and then we did a thing called Tipping the Velvet when she was uh, oh, yes. certainly, certainly not young. I mean, you know, it was a more of an adult project um, yes. with yeah. uh, Rachel Sterling and then again on this. So, uh, yeah, we've had a few a few encounters over the years. It's been fun. Oh, she's brilliant in this. And tell us about the amazing child actors in this. It's so rare to find child actors who are totally, to use a sort of slightly naff um, technical word present um, on screen they they, to- they they completely inhabited their roles but they also completely understood the nature of filming um, Isabella particularly I mean she'd cry at the end of the day because she didn't want to go home she loved it I actually wrote to Isabella's mum and said you know I've, I've never done this before but you do realise you've got to realise that your child has a re- genuine talent and if this is a passing phase super but if she has a desire to carry it on into the future 
you know, I, I really believe she's got it, whatever it is. You know, it's it's a, a it's a presence on screen. The camera adores her, but also she just has an instinct on set. She could take direction. These are you know young children, seven or so, um, could take great direction very easily and be inventive. Some of the scenes, some of the dialogue between myself and Isabella uh, Tessa uh, are improvised, and she was just wonderful at it. And Darcy melts your heart as Olivia. She's she's just beautiful. yes. So there's also a very chilling cameo appearance by acting as your old headmaster, I have to say. He's not a chilling person himself. But the late Jeffrey Palmer, <laughs> oh, yeah. which turned out, I was very sad to be his last performance. So tell us a bit about that. Oh, well, this is lovely. Our, our producer, director, writer, everything else, John Hay, would be too shy to admit it. But Jeffrey came out of retirement purely because he adored John Hay. He was, um, you know, 90 plus. It was, as you say, his his last screen performance. I'd worked with him yonks ago on something and knew him to be, a you know, a really kind and funny man with that sort of hangdog look. Um, that sort of stoical, uh, acerbic delivery that he had. But I was concerned that he was, you know, a man in his senior years now and, you know, hadn't been on camera or, uh, for a while. So I did have a quiet word with the assistant director. I said, look, you know, do you think maybe we should get some cue cards or possibly even an earpiece? I've worked with senior gentlemen who really, you know, can't do it anymore. And and uh, so they said, well, we'll have a think about that. Anyway, he turned up and he was he was absolutely bang on the money. Every single take nailed it and uh, made Keely and I look like complete amateurs. Knew our lines better than we did. You know, he was amazing, absolutely amazing and, and you know, charming. And there's I've got a lovely photo, which I might post, actually, of, of um, him with his his hand on John Hay, our director's shoulder. And it was a real sort of avuncular look of well done my boy or you know I'm pleased to be here it was so so touching and we had a lovely day together and uh, he does play the um the archbishop of, the former archbishop of canterbury who was indeed ruled's uh, uh headmaster oh. and uh, he'd gone on to uh, then as it were ma- um crown and marry the queen and um but he so rule did in real life go to ask him for you know, when when this grief uh, was was smashing the family, you know, right between the eyes of of what was the church's take on this, and uh, he gave some fantastically awful advice. And uh, awful, and really, yeah. Which I won't, <laughs> I won't spoil. I won't spoil. For, you know, it, it's a, it's a, it, you don't see it coming, and it's just extraordinary. Well, it's just a measure of how brilliant an actor he is, because he is not avuncular at all in that scene. I mean, I've, it was one of my favourite scenes, actually, because it was so chilling and he was so completely horrible. <laughs> I know. That's it's so good to know. Um, obviously, Roald Dahl died 30 years ago, but has the family seen the film? Well, interestingly, see, the, the, the book is actually based on the uh, biography of Patricia Neal. So technically, there were no issues to do with copyright. But um, out of courtesy, really, more than anything, we did show it to the Dahl estate, both at the script stage and uh, after shooting. And uh, the estate were very... Um, you know, I don't think anybody particularly wants to have a film necessarily made about their own family. Um, but I think they understood very quickly that this was not trying to be a hatchet job. I may say there were far darker versions of the script. And if you read Gosh. any account of uh, Roald Dahl, he was, let's say, an interesting customer. Yes. <laughs> I think having dinner with Roald Dahl would be one of the most tense making evenings of your life because he would just 
from all accounts, just lobbed these little grenades into conversation just to really see what would happen and be really quite controversial, even if he didn't believe in the uh, uh, the idea in himself and could be really quite nasty, I believe. Uh, I'm being, you know, perfectly, I'm being probably being too kind, I don't know. But uh, and it also kids that I've, that, uh, or grown-ups I've met who've been to book launches when they were kids and said, oh, yes, I took my copy of so-and-so along to this book uh, book launch and got Royal Dahl to sign it because he was doing a reading. I said, oh, wow, was he, was he, well, that must have been great. No, he was really grumpy and didn't want to be there at all. Um, <laughs> so he was quite a, you know, a, a, a tricky guy. Um, but um, I think the, the estate recognised that we weren't doing a hatchet job. This was actually a story, a compassionate story about a couple going through immense trauma and how they navigated it. And and we did actually tone down a couple of things um, as a result, not because they were, you know, threatening to sue, but because we understood that their point of view. Um, and um, so, for instance, there's a scene in which Roald um, really loses it with Tessa, the, the young uh, the young Tessa, because she's uh, she's released some birds from a cage. And it was really quite a more vitriolic scene um, than it than it appears on the screen. Um, because they were adamant about Rule's relationship with his own children. And um, and so we respected that. And so we amended it to the extent that I had to revoice the entire scene uh, during lockdown and, of course, couldn't go to a studio. Um, even though I have sort of vague facilities at home, this was an outdoor scene. So I had to wait until night falls when all the bird song had gone and stand outside my front door and yell my head off. Um, and uh, <laughs> the neighbours, you know, lots of curtain twitching from the neighbours thinking that those Bonnevilles up to their, <laughs> up to their murderous tricks again. There's another really chilling scene when uh, Patricia Neal's producer-director uh, comes to try and lure her back to Hollywood. Yes, it's a scene in which Patricia, who is, you know, a, a, a one way out of this well of grief in which they are is, is to actually find validation in her career again and, and, to, and to perhaps go off and do a movie but she's you know saying I'm torn because I want to be I need to be here for Rules who's going through a much darker time and uh, and be obviously you know the family is a huge consideration how do we keep this family unit together and Rules who as I say at this point in his career was not that well known and I think there's a there's a recognizable all too human instinct that I'm damned if you're going to get out of it or find purpose in life, you know, sooner than I am. It's a very recognisable thing of a, it's a human uh, quality of, of perhaps you know, professional envy, uh, selfishness, um, you know, um, to, to a couple trying to navigate the best way through this pain. And ultimately, I mean, even though it's a very tricky course, and as you say, at the end, at the end, uh, after the end of our story, things didn't go so well. <laughs> Uh, in so many areas of their lives, uh, our film, our story, manages to end on on um, a note of, of, of you know positivity and um, and indeed creative energy. Well, absolutely. I mean, what came out of that appalling tragedy was Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, you know, going off the charts and her Oscar. Yes, I mean, I hasten to add that you know there has been some artistic license in t- terms oh. of playing with the timeline. <laughs> uh, not all these things <laughs> happened at once. But uh, th- within this two-year period, there was both this uh, this roller coaster of grief and tragedy of of, 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 of of a fissure in the family. I mean, by her own admission, in her own autobiography, she says she wasn't in love with Rule when she got married. You know, she was in love uh, with Gary Cooper, with whom she'd had an affair, and he wouldn't leave his wife. And um, 
so you know she's very she was very open about that um but they did find this great uh, companionship certainly for a, a good period and brought up these you know three and then four <laughs> um and then more uh, fantastic children um before she then suffered two terrible strokes and uh, you know their marriage didn't last etc but in this period it's really as i say it's, it's it's charting this journey through through grief and actually towards a, a positivity uh, at the end of it when does it go out uh, so so to Olivia goes out on Sky Cinema on uh, Friday the 19th of this month. Uh, Brilliant. That is. Yes. It's just, yes. it's Obviously, people will be listening film. to this podcast for years to come. Exactly. Particularly <laughs> the 19th of February 2021 is yeah. the <laughs> Hall's going to have it on a loop. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Hugh. It's brilliant. such a brilliant film. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. All the best. I could have talked to Hugh Bonneville all day, but very sadly, that's all we have time for this week. But please keep tuning in and leaving comments. You'll find details of the Piazzolla Music Competition, bookshop.org, and to Olivia on our website at countryandtownhouse.co.uk. There you'll also find our sister podcast, House Guest, in which Carol Annette talks to big names in interior design. This week, she's talking to the garden designer, Marcus Barnett. Plus, you'll also find our great British... British Brands podcast in collaboration with business leader Michael Heyman of Changemakers. And this week he's talking to interior designer and founder of FBC London, Fiona Barrett-Campbell. And if you add forward slash newsletter to countryandtownhouse.co.uk, you could sign up for both the Country and Townhouse weekly newsletter as well as the monthly newsletter from Great British Brands. And by the way, Patrick Kidd, Thank you again for mentioning us this week in the Times Diary. We are here to serve. See you next week. (laughs) Bye.